This is really a follow-up meditation on <coughs> last week's uh, parable of the lazy artisan. Remember, the Rishna had uh, told us that <coughs> that the second of Sivan is called Yom Hamayuchus. The first of Sivan is Rosh Chodesh. The uh, third, fourth, and fifth is the three days of preparation for Pentecost, the three days, the Shloshes Yemei HaGbola. So we don't say Tachnun and we get ready for Shavuos. What about the second of Sivan? It's a, it's, it's a dead day. It's not Rosh Chodesh. It's not the three days. It's not Shavuos. Out of the first six days of, of Sivan, the second day is a kind of dud. And therefore they called it Yom HaMuyuchus. Yuchus means a pedigree. Yichus. When you get married, you marry into Yichus, right? Yom Hamuyuchus. Um, both of you married pedigree. Um, so well, it's a joke because it has nothing of its own. Okay. It's only reflecting what the other days oh, shined I see. into it. I see. I see. So it's a joke, right? But the originist says, no, not a joke at all. This day... Um, because it's a Gemara in Tainus that uh, it's Ke'ilu. So it's Ke'ilu. It, it's, uh, the Gemara talks about a different topic, but that day um, becomes uh, reflective of the days around it. And he brings this mashal, as we talked about, of a king uh, who wanted to decorate the four walls of his palace. And he was going on a journey, and he tells the artisans to uh, four different artisans to make sure that everything's done well. He goes on his journey. Three of them do a great job, and he warns them: if it's not done, you'll you'll have to pay you'll, with your life. Your heads will be chopped off. And the fourth one, he's a lazy bugger. And um, in the story, Reb Nachman brings, not the original, he says, "Oi, what have I done?" What have I done? What have I wasted my time? Of course, a reflection on one's life, right? When one comes to meet the king soon. And the king comes on the day and he looks at the first three walls. Oh, this is beautiful, Louis XIV. This is wonderful, postmodern. This is early American. Oh, I love it. And he looks at the fourth one. And what had the guy done? He had painted it with quicksilver. It was a shiny mirror. And the king saw in his wall the other three walls mirrored. And the king was exceedingly pleased. Maybe because he saw himself as well and the furniture, not just a mural itself. Whatever it is, the Rishna uses that vort to explain Yom HaMiyuchus and states that if a person refines himself. He himself is a nothing. He's a gurnished, right? But if he refines himself to the point where he is able to reflect all the great teachers he has, all the days around him that are holy, then he becomes the day that is of Yichus. He becomes pedigreed himself, explaining the second day of Sivan. 
But he would reflect not only the great teachers, but also the, the bums. So he said if he refines himself, he, 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 he makes a precondition that you have to refine yourself. You can't just be a mirror for everything, right? You have to refine yourself. Okay, so that's the parable that the Rishina uses. So I'm saying, where does he get this from? Rishina, that's in the 19th century. This, this is such an ancient parable. And I started looking to Stith Thompson of the, you know, the Encyclopedia of, uh, of uh, Folklore Motifs. Uh, started looking. And then there was this paper written by Zev Kitsis. He um, is a scholar, I think, in the Negev. He's an ur of Reb Zev Wolf Kitsis, the Or HaMeir, one of the Talmidim of the Baal Shem of, of the Magid, uh, the Or HaMeir. He's an anical. So he started looking into the origins of this marshal that the Rishina had brought. Now, Rav Nachman's marshal only has two walls, not four. So one wall is done well, and the other wall is mirrored. And Rav Nossin says, I don't remember the nimsha. I just don't remember it. And so later Breslovs in this generation of tried to suggest that even though um, it's Pshitas and Tamimus, you bring that refining self, then um, it'll be okay. Meaning even even though you've said, what have I done with my life? I've spent my life wasted, laziness. Look at him. He's made this beautiful wall. I've done nothing. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, Vayita Bene HaMelech, if you approach this with a sense of self-scrutiny, it will be okay. Okay, now he brings two sources that I want to discuss. The first is a Greek source, and that is the contest between Seuxis and Paraseos. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned this yesterday, but it's, I, I just want to, I had some insight since I, I told over the story that I want to share. So the idea that someone engages in subterfuge in a contest, mm-hmm. So there were two famous painters in ancient Greece, Seuxis and Parhasios. Each was at the pinnacle of his career, and nobody could decide who was better. They decided to resolve the issue once and for all with a painting duel, held under strictly controlled conditions. They assigned themselves two areas of a wall, each invisible from the other, so that they might work in private. Each artist was to paint a mural a fresco of pigment in wet plaster. Mm -hmm. A carefully assembled audience or jury was to view both paintings and award won the prize, ending forever the tedious and insoluble rivalry between the two. And now the whole of Greece would know who was the best painter. It's very Greek, isn't it? Oh, yes. Seuxis was actually thought to have had the edge. His paintings were not ultimately judged better than Parhasios's, they always had a strong initial effect. Mm. They could knock your eyes out using the tricks of trompe l'oeil or super realism. Mm. Parhasios knew the same tricks, but he was more subtle. You got to like his paintings because of their time release effects, Mm. which sometimes made them less likable in the beginning. He was subtler and more talented because his works took time and endured and therefore, ironically, less likely to win over Zeuxis, who was a master of initial surprise. We live in a culture of initial, sudden, you know, 
everything has to be right now in sound bites. Mm -hmm. So the contest was really about Parhasius' ability to think his way through this dilemma. When it came time to judge the completed paintings, the audience of select critics assembled and behind them a large crowd of onlookers. Zeuxis was calm. He produced, he seemed to think, the best work for this occasion. Behind the curtain was his life's masterpiece. <clears throat> the spokesman for the jury told Zeuxis to draw the curtain. And when he... Crowd and jury gasped to see a bowl of fruit, plain and simple. Mm. How could a great painter be content in a situation such as this to paint a bowl of fruit? It was admittedly a very fine painting, still life. The glint of light off the pale green surface of the pears made them seem moist and firm. You could practically taste the pomegranates. Mm. After a long period of silence, a bird flew down on top of the wall, straight into the painted bowl of fruit from which it had hoped to steal a grape. Hitting the wall with a smack, the bird fell to the ground, a victim of the illusion. Without a doubt, this proved what the jury and audience could scarcely conclude, that the realism of the painting had made it escape its limits as artificial. The real judge had been the bird, whom no one could accuse of favoritism. When the gasps of the crowd died away, Zeuxis was sure he had won, no matter what Parsias's entry was. For what better demonstration could he have hoped? Zeuxis' confidence now caused him to straighten up, breathe deeply, and radiate a newfound humanity, which he turned on to Parhasios, who was standing at the edge of the open circle of onlookers. Okay, now let's look at your painting, he said. He feigned or honestly exhibited a meek but genial tone. Slightly bowed, he did not speak, but turned slightly towards the area where his mural was to be revealed. The crowd shuffled and murmured. Zeuxis by now had become their leader. Now standing around Parahasius's wall, the crowd grew impatient. Even the curtain began to look a bit dowdy. Not wishing to over-embarrass his rival, he came forward after a long interval and addressed the painter. I think he said, it's time to see what you may have done. Would you honor us by drawing the curtain? Zeuxis says to Parhasius. Can't be done, Parhasius replied. The jury, audience, and Zeuxis thought Parhasius was at a breaking point, that he was emotionally crushed by the nearness of defeat. Surely we would be very happy to see your work, but we're getting a bit impatient standing in the hot sun. Can you bloody well show us the painting? After a pause, Parhasius replied, you are looking at it. The onlookers focused more carefully on the wall realizing at last they were looking at a painting of a curtain. You don't have to be Greek to conclude that the prize went to Parhasius. Zeuxis fooled a bird and Parhasius... While Zeuxis had tricked a bird, Parhasius had not only managed to trick human beings, but his fellow professional at that. A subtler truth within this parable is about... Now, this is my point. It's about human perception. The bird went for the food and was dependent upon the appearance of the grape, which it would in some eternal moment in bird heaven be able to eat. It's a kind of operant conditioning situation where the stimulus and reward follow each other in close succession in neurophysiology experiments. 
the human situation is different in the evidence of this anecdote. The humans saw not a grape-like thing, but the cover of that which they wanted to see. They were tricked because they were expecting a concealment of what they wanted. They valued only what was invisible and inaccessible because they were used to concealments. They did not inspect the painting of the curtain closely, and they were tricked by their own expectations, even if the curtain had been painted poorly. So the first moral of the story might be that the audience's take-home truth. Good artists can fool our natural selves. Great artists fool our cultural and real selves. So what am I saying here? In Rabbi Nachman's Moshal, the man paints a mural. The lazy artisan paints Quicksilver, just reflects the mural. Why was it Vayitav Be'ene HaMelech? What is in that fakery that the king was delighted in? Okay, so on the surface, the king sees himself, he sees everyone else's paintings. That's the surface, but what is this really telling you about the king? And that got me thinking to this uh, uh, this wonderful, wonderful contest in the Greek uh, between, the, between the, 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 the artists. There is a transitive relationship between an audience and an illusion. We do it every time we go to the movies. It's a suspension of disbelief. The audience knows that the painting is an illusion. With the intransitive relationship between the audience and patients and their gullible consumption of the painting of the curtain. It demonstrates a two-screen theory. There are two walls. The Zeus's wall, supposed to disappear through the consent of the audience willing to be tricked into the illusion. Oh, these really are real grapes. Look at the bird. It flew down and thought it was. The small object of desire, impatience, the surplus of the event, and the return of the center of the other that the audience has constructed the authoritarian basis of the painted illusion. Ah, now we're getting somewhere. That painting over there is the world of reality. Well, is the world of reality real? We are taught constantly, certainly in Kabbalah, that whatever is down here is a poor reflection of what is up there. So that is just the surface. So then what is it about the mirror that the king likes that's mirroring that so-called reality? So that brings me to Rumi, and the Rijana's marshal of the artisan, the lazy artisan, comes from Rabbi Yitzhak Aroma, the Akeda Yitzhak, who lived in the 1200s, made Aliyah, and says, I heard this, meaning from a foreign source, a non-Jewish source, I heard this. And Kitsis says, well, the only person who's talking about such a parable is Rumi. So let me read you the story from Rumi. It's very short. Art gives a teasing taste of surrender without the full experience. Beautiful poetry can keep one on the verge of the oceanic annihilation in God, Rumi says. We've been walking in the surf, holding our roams up, when we should be diving naked under and deeper under. Art as a flirtation with surrender. The poem that follows, Rumi gives us a taste of this surrender, deeper and deeper, 
as practiced by the Greeks, who are like Sufis in this regard. And here it goes. The prophet said, there are some who see me by the same light in which I am seeing them. Our natures are one. Without reference to any strands of lineage, without reference to text or traditions, we drink the life water together. This is Rumi's anti, you know, Litvish, uh, the Mutakalim Arabic, uh, Talmide Chachomim, right? He's a mystic and he says, you don't need all that stuff. Just dive into the water of the divine. Ramanuja says that also in the uh, same century uh, in, in, in his reaction to the Hindu yeah. uh, Tamil poet. Drowning in, it's called Hymns to the Drowning. Yeah. It's been translated. Hymns to Hillim to the drowning, the drowning in the divine. So here's the story about that hidden mystery. The Chinese and the Greeks were arguing as to who were better artists. The king said, we'll settle this matter with a debate. The Chinese began talking, but the Greeks wouldn't say anything. They left. The Chinese suggested that each be given a room to work on with their artistry. Two rooms facing each other and divided by a curtain. The Chinese asked the king for a hundred colors, all the variations, and each morning they came to where the dyes were kept and took them all. The Greeks took no colors. They're not part of our work. We don't deal with color. They went to their room and began cleaning and polishing the wall. All day, every day, they made those walls as pure and as clear as the open sky. So that could be a mirror, but it, all could, it also could be a glass that is so reflective, you know. Transmission. There is a way that leads from all colors to colorlessness, Rumi says. Know that the magnificent variety of the clouds and the weather comes from the total simplicity of the sun and the moon. The Chinese finished and they were so happy. They beat the drums in the joy of completion. Now the king entered their room, astonished by the gorgeous color and detail. The Greeks then pulled the curtain dividing the rooms. The Chinese figures and images shimmering reflected on the clear Greek walls. They lived there even more beautifully and always changing in the light of the day. The Greek art is the Sufi way. They don't study books of philosophical thought. They make their loving clearer and clearer. No wanting, no anger. In that purity they receive and reflect the images of every moment. From here, from the stars, from the void, they take them in as thought, they, as though they were seeing with the lighted clarity that sees them. And now I want to repeat that last thing because that's the, my punchline. In that purity, so that's the mirror, that's the reflecting. They receive and reflect the images of every moment. So what the Moshal is saying that the second of Sivan is Yom HaMiyuchas, because that day has nothing of its own, no color, nothing. The first day is Rosh Hashanah. The third, fourth, and fifth is the Shloshes Me'akbola. The second is Agurnisht. So why is it Yom HaMiyuchas? In the purity, it receives and reflects the images of every moment. From here, the stars, from the void, ayin. They take them in as though they were seeing with the lighted clarity that sees them. What's the lighted clarity that sees you? 
That's exactly the Rishna's point. The lighted clarity that sees them. I'm looking in the mirror every morning and shaving. And I'm saying, you are looking at every man who shaves. Who's looking at me? Who's looking at me? The image of me? That's a surface image. And I was filled with such Rahmanas. For eternity, the Rabbin Shalom has to look at every man shaving every morning <laughs> and every woman putting on her makeup and mascara. What do we say? Can you that, imagine that, that mirror? Stands behind the mirror? What do we mean? What do we mean? As though they were seeing with the lighted clarity that sees them. So then that mirror becomes what? It is the all seeing eye. It is the very reflection, not of that painting of the mural of the Chinese mural or the Greek or, or the beautiful um, artwork, the still life. That still life is an illusion because behind that still life is the lighted clarity that sees them. And that's what I think the deepest aspect of. So it was very good that Reb didn't remember the nimshol because I just wrote to one of the Manhigim in Breslau and he, he, he it, it was a reduction of, you know, the pshitas and tamimas that a person has to have the regret. It's looking at that parable uh, of the mirrors in a very limited way of, you know, what have I done with my life? Oh, will God forgive me? Here, through the, the Greek contest and through Rumi, and certainly Rabbi Yitzhak of Aroma, who really developed Kabbalah, you know, for the Ramban and for Rebit, uh, Azriel of Girona, I mean, he was such a critical <sighs> milestone in the history of Kabbalah. Um, he is moved by this notion, the lighted clarity. What's that in Kabbalah? The Tiharu, the Tal, the dew that comes down and congeals into the Mon, the Moitzi Lechem in Hashemayim, that gets integrated into our bodies and has no psolas, right? When you eat the Mon, there's no psolas that comes out. Every, every minuscule drop of the Mon gets integrated into the body, so it comes from such a refined area. That's the Tiharu, that's this lighted clarity that the mystics talk about. And so for me, I've been struggling this, what, three weeks now, this marshal of the lazy artisan. It turns out that the lazy artisan finds in the king, the king sees something in himself in the lazy artisan. And what is it? The lazy artisan has realized, maybe unconsciously, maybe because he spent his whole life in pursuing laziness and therefore wasn't burdened by all the textual He's heaviness and weighted. His own, his own right. thoughts into the thing. Right, just... he doesn't have the weight of the, right. of the artistic tradition of doing right. still life. He just, he, he's just wandered with the winds and now it's come to the end. Yes. And suddenly he grabs Quicksilver and he smears the wall or, or the Greeks refine that glass. Yes so that it is reflective of the surface of reality that is, but also shimmering light as the day progresses from morning through night, so that they are seeing with the same lighted clarity that sees him. The Melech is seeing in that image, finally, something that's within him. 
the lighted clarity that sees through reality, the illusion of reality, and he sees that mirrored in the artisan's laziness. Adding nothing of his own, adding no thoughts. So no listen, thoughts of his own. how does this connect with Yaakov Avinu wrestling with the divine? It turns out that the Rishna uses this in one other place in which it says, Rachel Mavaka, Jacob's favorite wife, wife. He buries her on the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she died on him. And she dies on him. And he has to apologize to Yosef, right? Mesa lie Rachel. So the Rishina says, excuse me, Rachel Mavakal Bener? She only had two tribes. It should have been Leah. Leah. Why isn't Leah Mavakal Bener? That's his question. And he uses this parable of the mirrors mm-hmm. and says, the lazy artisan, he has no light of his own. He's only reflecting the light of the other. Ah, Rachel gave herself over to Leah. Remember, she gives her the simanim on the wedding night and she makes the noises and she lies under the bed, according to the Medrash, right? Her mysterious nefesh is saying, Leah, I'm nothing without you. I'm a reflection of you. So the original says, ah, you're a reflection of her. Then you have everything that you have plus her. You are the meyuchas, even though you have no light of your own. That's Rachel. Rachel Emenu is Because Shina. she has no light because of her own. Because. Even That's why the sphere of Malchus has no light of its own. And the culmination of all the spheres down here in this world ends up with the moon, with Malchus, which waxes and wanes, which is Rachel Emenu. And that's why on Tikkun Chatzos, we have Tikkun Leia and Tikkun Rachel. We have both Tikkunim and Chatzot. But that's the Rishna's metaphor. He's using the metaphor of that mirror for Rachel. Now, Jacob's yeah. tikkun happens through his wives. Yes. That answers yes. your question. It, it, it does, because we have Yaakov Avinu was not a, I don't want to say a tragic figure, but kind of, because Rachel is is the mirror. She is the clarity. She is the, and he's wrestling. He's, he's fighting. He's right. fighting with the divine. And so when he says to Paro that my years have been what, many and bad, or yeah. few, few and bad, mm-hmm. and he doesn't seem a happy man. No, no. Even on his deathbed, there's exactly. an anxiety. Exactly. That's where he's. That's where it's clear that he's not a happy right, man. Right. He spent right. his whole life wrestling with. Right. Well, that is a reflection. And he, had, and he loved Rachel. Yeah. Who was just right. But that is a, that is a reflection of the archetype that Am Yisrael is. And through our going through the exile, we are constantly struggling between Rachel and Leah. In fact, the whole of the Zohar is this kind of dancing of the Shekhinah between Ima Ilah and uh, the higher He which, and the lower He in the Yudke Vovke, which is the two feminines, right? We're, we're torn between Malchut and Bina, the Tvuna. So that is exactly the dance we constantly do.